Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Proverbs 18.10 and Psalms 9, verses 9 through 10. Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Psalms 9, 9 through 10. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. This is the word of our Lord. You can be seated. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Those are a couple of my favorite verses that we just read. I have a lot of favorite verses, though, don't I? Yeah, and those are two of the great verses. God's Amazing Promises is our current teaching series. If you have your sermon notes, grab those out. You'll see those two verses at the top of the notes, along with some introductory thoughts. And we'll get started here. So God's Amazing Promises, we kick this off uh, Easter weekend. It's going to take us all the way into the summer months. And we're just looking at the various promises in God's Word as, as they pertain to us. And they're pretty amazing when you understand them, but more importantly, that you apply them to your lives. And this weekend, we're talking about God's amazing promises for all of your needs. Take a look at your sermon notes there. A couple of introductory thoughts. There is nothing more powerful, practical, and will give you greater pleasure than to know the God of the Bible intimately. Whenever you are terribly anxious, angry, or depressed, it's because at that moment you've forgotten who the God of the Bible is or you've never really known him. Let's take a look at a couple of these verses here that kind of help us to understand this idea of knowing God. The first one is Proverbs 18.10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Typically how I study the Bible, I'll, I'll, I'll meditate on it, I'll dig into the, the words, and so let's do that just for a few moments. The name represents what? When we talk about the name of God, what are we talking about anyway? His character, so we're saying the character of the Lord, the, the word Lord, notice in the Old Testament, all capital letters for the word Lord, it's his personal name that is found in Exodus 3.14. When God revealed himself to Moses, he said, I am that I am. So we could say Yahweh, personal name for God. We're talking about intimacy with God. So the, the name or the character of the Lord is a strong tower. So they would have these towers within these fortified cities, and they became strategic places of, of not only protection that you could run to for protection, but also perspective military perspective so you could win the battle but it was also not just protection and perspective but a place of pleasure certainly you could see for miles from this tower how many have ever been to Hyatt Regency downtown up in the restaurant at the top a lot of fun you can see over the whole valley 360 degrees because the it circles around as you're eating there and you can see the whole valley so certainly it was very pleasurable up there but this is what these towers represent perspective protection pleasure, certainly. And it says this, the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Who's the righteous man anyway? That's you and I who have a relationship with God by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So people who have this relationship, they run into this tower and find safety there. That's what he's saying here. And, and so, so let me ask you this question. So where do you run? Where do you run when things are getting difficult in your life? If you could be more self-aware, you would see that you go somewhere to someone, to something, to help you to deal with the stress, the anxiety, the worry in your life. We all tend to do that. And it's saying here, those that have a relationship with God, they run to God. Now, those of us that are righteous, that have this right relationship with God, we have a relationship with him, we don't just run to him in bad times, we run to him in good times. We run to him in bad times because he's, he's bigger than any problem that we'll ever face. But we also run to him in good times because he's better than all the pleasures in this world. So the righteous man runs to it, this strong tower, and is safe. That's a promise. You can bank on it. It's an amazing promise. Now let's take this next couple verses, Psalm 9, 9 and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed 
a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. Let's, let's walk through this. So the Lord, once again, all capital letters, personal name for God, Yahweh, is a stronghold. I, I said refuge because I memorized it in the NIV, New International Version. It's the same word, same word the second time too where he says stronghold in times of trouble. So refuge for the oppressed. The word oppressed means crushed. Have you ever been crushed by life? Yeah, we all have from time to time. It's just, it's overwhelming. It crushes us. And then he goes on a stronghold in times of trouble, difficulties, pain, sorrow, problems, and those who know your name. There's the word name once again. Know his character. Put their trust in you. The word know here is more than information. It is intimacy with God. So it's one thing to know God. It's altogether another thing to experience God. So, so not only do you need to know the attributes of God, the nature of God, the, the character of God, you need to know that, and that needs to be... Um, intellectually coherent, but this word goes beyond that intellectual coherency of the character qualities of God. It's existential compelling. It's experiential captivating that you just don't know about God. You have an experience of God on your heart. You know him. You interact with him. You have relationship with him. And there's nothing better on this planet than to have a relationship with God. That's what he's saying here. Those who know your name put their trust in you. How many have ever met someone, and the more you get to know them, the less you trust them? Show of hands. Can you guys relate to that? You go, oh, boy, yay. I don't trust this guy. I don't trust this gal. Well, that's not true with God. Here's what it's saying. The more you get to know God, the more you will trust him. In fact, that's evidence that you really know him. Man, you just trust him. Those who know his name will trust in him. See, if you're struggling with your trust, trust in God during a difficult time, it's because you maybe might not know him as well as you think you know him. By the way, that's when we really, that's the test of whether or not we really know him is during difficult times because it's revealed through our trust or lack of trust in our life. But those who know his name will put their trust in him. Check this out. For you, O Lord, have not. In fact, the word will never forsake those who seek you. What does that mean to seek God? It means that he's your meaning, he's your hope, he's your happiness. He's your passion. He's the priority of your life. He's the pursuit of your life, your very existence of living. Those who pursue him, he'll never forsake. He'll never forsake us. Now, This idea here of of knowing God and experiencing God, this is what I want you to know and want you to experience. Your worship of God, your awe and wonder of God rises or falls with your knowledge of God. If, if If you kind of have a flat relationship with God, the quality of your relationship is low this morning, it's because you need a bigger understanding of God. Not just more information about God, but you need to have a greater level of intimacy with him. You need to get to know him. Oh, my goodness. Because he's never forsaken those who seek him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. The Lord is a a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name trust in him because he has never forsaken those who seek him. You can take these to the bank. I don't know how many times I've used these verses in my life. God's amazing promises to us this morning. Now, we're going to unpack this even more so as we work through our notes because we're going to look at the various names of God. We're going to look at the Old Testament compound Hebrew names for God, and they are amazing. For every one of his character qualities, every one of his character qualities, qualities meets, meets our needs and a need within us in a specific way. And so it's quite spectacular. But let me read to you a song that I came across as I was preparing for this study. It's an interesting song, and I think it kind of fits... Uh, what I want to happen in your heart this morning, it was a group, I've never heard of them before, King's Porch, and the name of the song is I Speak Jesus. Anybody hear that song before? It's a, it's a, it's a great song, actually. He says, I just want to speak the name of Jesus over every heart and every mind. I know there is peace in your presence. 
I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus till every dark addiction starts to break, declaring there is hope and there is freedom. I speak Jesus. I just want to speak the name of Jesus over fear and all anxiety to every soul held captive by depression. I speak Jesus. Your name, and I like the way it kind of ends here. That, that isn't all the words, but that's just some of the words. But this is my hope. This is my prayer for us this morning. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. His name is even much more than all of that. That's what he wants us to experience this morning as we understand his nature, his character, his attributes, and how they meet our needs in our lives. Your name is power. Your name is healing. Your name is life. Break every stronghold, shine through the shadows, and burn like fire. I want your heart to burn like fire for him. And I'm telling you, the more you get to know him, the more your heart will burn like fire. I can tell when people are really walking in vital union and communion with this God that they know, their hearts burn like fire for him. So that's my prayer. Now, let me kind of give you a, a look into my own personal devotional life. When I spend time with the Lord and I go through, and I'll, one of the ways that I do that is I, I, I'll pray through the Lord's Prayer. And I use that as kind of a checklist. The Lord's Prayer was never meant for us to kind of robotically go through, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, unless you really understand the implications of each of those statements and you think out the implications. But what I do is I'll take each of those statements and just pause for a moment and think out the implication, Our Father who art in heaven. And I'll think about the implications that I'm a child of God, that he protects me and provides for me. He's lavished his love upon me. And then I'll go to the next statement. Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Your name, your character is in categories beyond categories, beyond my wildest dreams. And that's where I begin to work through these compound Hebrew Old Testament uh, names of God like Jehovah Sidkenu, my righteousness, Jehovah Makedesh, my sanctification, Jehovah Shalom, my peace, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, Jehovah Shema, you are with me, Jehovah Nissi, my banner, Jehovah uh, Rapha, my healer, Jehovah Rohi, my shepherd. That's what we're going to look at this morning because each of those meet a specific need in our lives. And so God wants to, here's your first fill in the blank, God wants to forgive my sins, forgive my sins. And this is found in Jeremiah 23, 6. I'll give you a little background with each one of these. So Jeremiah 23, 6, the Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, that's that Old Testament Hebrew name for God, personal name for God. And so this is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now what he's talking about here is what is known biblically as positional or imputed righteousness, being right in God's eyes, that so we have a right relationship with him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 helps us to understand that. Best commentary for scripture is what? It's always scripture, yeah. So here's, here's a good commentary for that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, so this is what it's saying. So our performance and our record, we're, we're all, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And, and so we have an imperfect record before God, and that keeps us away from God. But our record and our performance was placed upon Christ on the cross, and we received his perfect record and performance. So we have this right standing with God by grace through faith, in Jesus Christ. And so that's what it, that verse is saying, 2 Corinthians 5.24, for our sake he made him who, uh, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is right standing. This right standing with God is not based on my record or performance but on Christ. This is what a lot of people are really confused over in our culture today. They think that they can earn a right standing with God. You can't do that. But that right standing with God has been given to us by grace through faith in Christ. And so it's not achieved, it's received by putting our faith in Christ. Pretty, pretty amazing, actually. And, um, and so righteousness really is a, we could call it a resume. I'm going to kind of take you into this word a little bit more. I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this first one and a little less time on the second uh, attribute here of God or characteristic of God, and then we'll kind of zip through the rest of them because these first two are really foundational. But this first one, this righteousness, is our resume. It's, we'll call it a validating performance 
record. It's how we feel good about ourselves. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. These are verses that we shared last weekend. If you were here, we talked about this. In chapter, in chapter 3 of Philippians, listen to what Paul says. He's just finished up going through this list of achievements, accomplishments, accolades. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing what he says here. And then listen to what, how he refers to them in light of his relationship with God. This is what he says. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now this is the important part, he says, and be found in him not having a righteousness, we're talking this right standing with God, all my sins are forgiven before God, but not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you really only have two choices when it comes to this idea of having your sins forgiven before God, having a right standing with God. It's either works righteousness, and that falls flat, you can never accomplish that, or it's a faith righteousness. And, and what this is, it's, it's even more than that as it relates to our everyday life. Righteousness is our resume. It's a validating performance Record, a validating performance record is how we feel good about ourselves. And I call it a resume because you, you turn in a resume if you want to get a job. So they look at your validating performance record to see if they want you on with them in their company. You turn in a validating performance record uh, when you want to go to a university or college. I had to give my wife a validating performance record if she, to get her to marry me. And, uh, and so, uh, and so I, I obviously I, I, I kind of lied a little bit in the resume. And then she got stuck with me afterwards. No, I didn't have to do that. But in, in a sense, we kind of do that before we get married. Don't, don't we kind of size the other person up? We look to see, is this person a follower of Christ? Do they, are they a Christian? Do they have character? Those, that's a validating performance record. That's what this idea of righteousness is. And so you either have a works righteousness or a faith righteousness. A works righteousness could be likened to what Adam and Eve did. Remember when they uh, thought God was holding out on them? They were deceived into thinking that somehow he doesn't have our best interest at heart in the garden, Genesis 3. And, and so they, they turned their back on God. They turned away from God. They did what he didn't want them to do. And so there was this spiritual alienation that immediately created a psychological alienation. And they realized they were naked. And, oh, we need a, we need a validating performance record. So what did they do? They put on fig leaves. And so works righteousness is kind of a fig leaves approach to covering our nakedness and to feel good about ourselves. I feel pretty naked here, so I'm going to pursue this or that or any number of things to make myself feel better about myself. So you either have a, a works righteousness or a faith righteousness. So here's my question for you. How do you know if your life is based on a works righteousness or a faith righteousness? How do you know? Ephesians 6.14 talks about the breastplate of righteousness talking about a faith righteousness. So this is how you know. This is how you know the difference between the two. Because although you can say, oh, no, I have a faith righteousness, you can still be relying on your works righteousness to feel good about yourself. We all do it. How do you know the difference between a works righteousness or a faith righteousness? If you have a faith righteousness, you can withstand anything. You have the breastplate of righteousness. Ephesians 6.14. If you're absolutely devastated by the loss of something, it is a good thing that you've promoted to being your righteousness, your validating performance record. The next time you're disappointed, cast down, really hurt, don't pray, Lord, change my circumstances, but you must say to yourself, this is a good thing I'm losing, but it's not my righteousness. Now, what I'm talking about is that oftentimes we take good things in our life and we make them our righteousness, our validating performance record, such as our marriages. Those are good things, but they're never to be the ultimate thing in our life. God is to be the ultimate thing in our life. Those are second, third, and fourth things in our life. We take our kids, the performance of our kids, how our kids turn out. That becomes our validating performance record. That's how we feel good about ourselves. Or we take our job, job performance. 
Any number of things, just as the Apostle Paul in the third chapter of Philippians was doing. He was looking at all of his accolades, accomplishments, achievements, acquisitions, everything. He says, that's all worthless compared to the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Having a faith righteousness, being in right standing before God. It's the only eyes in the universe that matter that sees me, loves me, cares for me, gave his life for me. I'm perfect in his eyes because of what Christ has done. That's, that's what he's talking about here. And we all tend to do that. Works righteousness versus faith righteousness. The reason you can't handle the difficult circumstances in your life, if you really to, to analyze those circumstances or the interaction we have with people, it's because you need to demote whatever it is that you've elevated to this priority, this ultimate place in your life. You need to demote it and replace it with your righteousness in Jesus Christ. You see, when people criticize you, when you fail, when disappointments happen, they may make you sorrowful. There's no doubt about it. But they won't devastate you because Christ gives us the perfect resume, the perfect validating performance record before Christ. That is out of this world. And when you understand that, you live in the reality of that, you become, you can handle anything in life. And so here's the next one. So that's the first one, forgive my sins. God wants to forgive my sins. Uh, the Lord is our righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. And now God wants to make me whole. This is the next one. Exodus 31, 13. I, the Lord, sanctify you. This is Jehovah Makedesh. In this Old Testament text, God has commanded his people through Moses to keep his Sabbaths. And uh, so Sabbath rest would be in the category of spiritual disciplines. Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what spiritual disciplines are. Just real quick, just, that's a good question. What are spiritual disciplines anyway? Real quick, ask them. So uh, what are spiritual disciplines? Yell them out to me. Prayer, yep. Church attendance is what we're doing right here. This is a church discipline. Prayer, Bible study, hanging out with other Christians in small groups, all these things. Uh, fasting, Bible study, yep, all of these things. Those are all, all spiritual disciplines, Sabbath rest, taking a break, where we take a break, we interact with God. This is what he's talking about here because God wants to make us whole. Now, let me ask you this. What are the three things that God uses to make us whole? When I say whole, I'm talking about becoming more like Christ. So we have this positional righteousness, but now we're talking about a practical righteousness. We have imputed righteousness. Now this is imparted righteousness to where the, uh, that first one this idea of Jehovah Sidkenu, that the Lord is our righteousness, he sees me as perfect, but practically I'm not. And so he wants to make me more and more as he sees me. And so he wants me to become more like Christ, become more Christ-like. That's what it means to be a Christian, Christ-likeness. So what are the three things that he uses to make us whole? How does he take all the pieces of our life and begin to put them back together so that we can become more like Christ, which is a phenomenal way to live. The Bible calls it holiness. I don't think you'll ever be happier than when you are more and more holy or whole in Christ Jesus. Nothing quite like that life. And that's his heart for you. What are the three things? We just talked about one, spiritual disciplines. But the next one would be the work of the Holy Spirit through those spiritual disciplines. But there's one more, one more side to this triangle of called spiritual formation. One more side. So you got spiritual disciplines, you got the Holy Spirit, and you got one more. What is it? It's suffering, sorry. It's suffering, it's difficulty. You can tell me all day long that you're a follower of Christ and you've never been happier and woohoo, things are going great until the wheels are falling off the cart and you're crashing and burning and all hell breaks loose in your life, that's the true test. And that's not meant to get down on you, but see, it's not the people in our lives, it's not the circumstances that, that make you uh, behave the way you behave. They're, that's not the fault of, of what's going on in your life and your response. Actually, your response, hard times don't cause uh, bad character, they reveal our bad character, our lack of being like Christ. 
So it's the difficulties of our life. It starts, you know, we can blame it on our spouse all day long. It's my wife. She's the one that makes me angry. No, no, you choose to get angry. Yeah, she, she has some work to do. There's no doubt about it, but don't blame her. Don't blame your kids, those bratty teenagers. Not your bratty teenagers. It's not, it's not the, your coworkers that are a pain. Yeah, 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 I understand they are a pain. But how are you responding? God's going to use that. Spiritual disciplines, Holy Spirit, hard times. He's going to use that in your life to shape you and make you more like Christ. That's where he's beginning, beginning to do his deep work in you. He wants to make you whole. That's how much he loves you. That's his work in our lives. This is that practical, imparted righteousness, doing right in God's eyes. Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what does that mean? Let me give you a couple of illustrations here before we move on to the next uh, characteristics of God. How many remember the story of the woman uh, caught in adultery? John chapter 8. The, the Pharisees bring this woman before Jesus. And what's the first thing that Jesus says? Jesus says, he is without sin. Do what? Throw the first stone. So the first thing that he's doing with this woman there, standing obviously filled with shame, uh, overwhelmed by these accusations, uh, the first thing he's saying is he's just telling her, you're not alone, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's kind of leveling the playing field before the cross. You're not alone. And then they all walk out one by one because they're all guilty, as we all are. No one can throw a stone because he is without sin, throw the first stone. We're, none of us are without sin, so none of us can throw a stone. And then they all walk out, and he goes over to the woman and says, where are your accusers? And she says, I have none. And this is really, really profound, and this is what Jesus says to her. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, notice the order at which he says that. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Listen to me. The verdict always comes before the performance. If you don't understand your your righteousness in Christ, that he is Jehovah's Sidkenu, you'll never be able to live out Jehovah Makedesh, that he wants to sanctify you. Your sanctification comes in direct proportion to your understanding that neither do I condemn you. You're in right standing with me. I love you. Now let the fullness of that begin to transform your life as you live that out in your everyday life. That's powerful. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So what he's saying there is that you're not alone, you're not condemned, and you're not stuck in your sin. Holiness, sanctification is not behavioral modification. It's heart transformation. And when your heart is smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you on the cross, it changes you, believe me. You have that righteousness in God. That, that is overwhelming. You have a validating performance record that is beyond anything that you could ever achieve on your own. And when you begin to live in the reality of that, it changes how you do life and how you, you're going to begin to love people. When you understand the intensity and the quality of his love for you, man, you're going to become a loving person. It will naturally change you. The reason why we're not so loving at times is because we're not living in the reality of what we have in him. We've lost track of that fact that he's forgiven me of all my sins. There's no condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Listen to what, uh, this is a good one. I, I was reminded of this this last week. This is the, in the faith chapter in the Bible. Anybody know where the faith chapter in the Bible is? Hebrews. What chapter is that? Chapter 11. Listen to, in the faith chapter, and it's talking about Moses now, see if you can see some wholeness taking place in his life and how he's dealing with sin because this is, this is what happens to a person's life when they're being transformed from the inside out. This is what it says, uh, Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You hear the contrast there? I would rather be mistreated with the people of God. I'd rather be a Christian and be mistreated than to have all the... Anything this world has to offer does not compare to what I have in God. That's what he's saying. 
That's, that's beautiful. That's amazing. That's what we have. It doesn't stop there. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. In other words, okay, the world despises me, hates me. You know, they, though, even if I'm persecuted, this is of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt or of this world, for he was looking to the reward. So here's, here's how we overcome sin in our life. We overcome sin in direct proportion to our being captivated by a superior pleasure in Christ. Sin offers a pleasure, and that's why we chase after it. We pursue sin because we think it's actually going to make us happier. He called it fleeting pleasures. Yeah, that's it. It's fleeting. There's some pleasure in it, but it's fleeting. But it's not fleeting when you pursue him and find pleasure in God. God is of greater pleasure than anything this world has to offer. And if you think otherwise, you are being deceived and duped as Adam and Eve was deceived and duped in the garden back in Genesis 3. There is nothing that will bring you greater pleasure. Let me go back to the beginning. There is nothing more powerful, practical, and will give you greater pleasure than to know the God of the Bible intimately. Absolutely amazing. And whenever you are terribly anxious, angry, or depressed, it's because at that moment you've forgotten who the God of the Bible is or you've never really known him. Man, I want you to know the God of the Bible. I want you to not just know about him. I want you to experience him, walk with him, enjoy him, love him, allow him to, to, to just pour his love into your life regularly, daily, and his truth. His truth brings freedom like nothing else. Okay, manifest his presence, that's the next one. So God wants to forgive my sins, make me whole, manifest his presence. Now we pick up the pace a little bit. You guys ready? Fasten your seatbelt, put on your helmets. Here we go. So manifest his presence. Ezekiel 48, 35, the Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah. This is the very last verse in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel stating the heart of God to be with his people. Now, I've taught this before. Let me just see if you know this. There is a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifested presence of God. We know that God is omnipresent. He's always, always present. Can never run from God. But that's different from the manifested presence of God, having a sense that God is here and you begin to interact with him. You have a relationship with him. He begins to speak to your heart. You're, you're reading his word, and there's a verse that pops off the page to you and nails you, and you go, oh, brings conviction, or it may bring comfort. But you know he's speaking to you. That's the manifested presence of God. That would be one of many ways that he begins to manifest his presence to us. And that's what he's saying. I want to manifest my presence to my people. I want them to know that I am with them. Uh, Psalm 42, that's what the psalmist is praying for. When the deer, as the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O God. He's not denying the omnipresence of God. He knows God's always there with him. But what he's struggling with, it's been a long time since I've had a sense of his presence on my heart. I'm just kind of going through the motions. His presence is just a concept. It's not a reality in my life. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, because it's kind of helping us to understand the manifested presence and the difference it will make in our lives. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So he, you could actually say, be, uh, keep your life free from the love of anything. Idolatry is loving anything more than you love God. <clears throat> Excuse me. So keep yourselves free from the love of money. He uses money because money is one, our number one rival God. So keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How do I do that? Here's how you do it. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. In other words, I'm never going to abandon you. And even when it gets tough in your life, I'm not... I'm not going to bail on you. That's what that means. I'll never forsake you. In fact, literally in the Greek, New Testament is written in the Koine Greek, everyday Greek language. This is what it's saying. Now listen to me. How many have ever gone through a real hard time that you felt like, where is God? He's nowhere to be found. Show of hands. Show of hands. Yeah, all of us have at some point in our life or another. I'm telling you. I just want you to know. Everybody look up here. He didn't leave you. He didn't forsake you. He wrote it down. He wanted you to know that. 
We're going to talk a little bit more of that next week when we feel abandoned. What do we do? How do we drive those truths down deeper into our heart? You'll have to come back next week to figure that one out. But, uh, but I'm just telling you, he didn't leave you, no matter what you feel. Because he told us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You don't need to run to money. You don't have to be discontent about your life. I am going to satisfy you more than anything else. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, notice the confidence that he has in this. He goes on, he says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So that's the manifested presence of God. When you realize that he is with you, you're overwhelmed by that, and it chases away the fears in your life. There's a confidence. There's a courage to be able to face whatever you're going through. It doesn't take away the difficulties, but you're able to face the difficulties. You're able to go through those things. See, that would be the manifested presence of God. Sometimes we need people to come alongside of us and help us to be reminded of that and, and to f- help us to keep our eyes on that. Okay, manifest his presence. That's what he wants to do. He wants to relieve my stress. That's the next one. Judges 6, 24. The Lord is peace, Jehovah Shalom. This is a great story here. The angel of the Lord appears to a man named Gideon and tells him that he will rescue Israel from the Midianites. How many are familiar with the story of Gideon? You guys? Okay, not very many of you. You don't read the Old Testament, do you? Huh? Okay, I, I think most of you probably are familiar with that story. So he says, Gideon, I want you to rescue Israel from the Midianites. He is very frightened by this call. So the angel performs a miracle to confirm the call, and Gideon is comforted and builds an altar and names it, the Lord is my peace. Now, most of us are familiar with the, the fleece of Gideon. This is the, the miracle that he performs is not the fleece. The fleece comes later on. But th- uh, the angel of the Lord, by the way, anytime the Old Testament says an angel of the Lord, it's referring to an angel. But when it says the angel of the Lord, it's referring to Christ. It's a Christophany. This is a theophany. So this is the Lord Jesus Christ showing up here. And so uh, he's frightened and... So what miracle does he do here? Well, Gideon goes in and makes a meal for his guest, brings it out to his guest, and the miracle is that Jesus torches the meal, burns it up. Oh, the roast is burnt. We need to go to Chick-fil-A for lunch. I mean, that's what he does. He torches it. And so Gideon goes, oh, you are God. Okay, what are we going to eat now? And uh, I don't think he was even worried about that afterwards, okay? Okay. And he builds an altar. He's just like, oh, okay, yeah, you're, you're God. He says, the Lord is peace. And that's how he responds. It's, it's a fascinating story. And, of course, he still struggles with doubt because then he has to do the fleece. And there's a number of other things that he has to do as he works through that. But we talked about this last week. If you missed last weekend's message and, and you struggle with worry, anxiety, or fear, you need to go back and listen to that one. And I'll just give you a couple of verses here that were from our text last weekend. We unpacked Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Here's two verses from it. This is what he says. This is what he's saying to us. If you're here this morning, you're filled with anxiety, fear, and worry. Listen. Listen up. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And if you do six, you will experience verse seven. That's verse six. Here's verse seven. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But a lot of times we don't do the first one. We're just wanting to experience the peace of God in our life. But you got to do the first one. Don't be anxious about anything. What are you anxious about? Think about it just for a moment. What's the biggest thing that's creating anxiety in your life right now? He said, don't be anxious about anything, about anything, about anything. Is it your health, your finances, relationship, politics, the direction of our country? I mean, what, what are you anxious about? He said, don't be anxious about anything. By the way, the word anxious, it doesn't mean not to be concerned. It just means uh, don't be pulled every which way in a, with this almost, almost like in a paranoia, kind of overwhelming, inordinate anxiety, worry, and stress, keeping you up nights, kind of, and, and making you angry and upset, and you're talking about it all the time. And that's, he said, don't do that. You're ruining your life. You're not really living the kind of life that I've come to give to you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer, interact with God. Supplication, that's bringing your list to God and thanksgiving. God, I know you're going to do what's best in my life. I'm just giving this over to you. I know that you will give to me what I would have asked for if I knew everything you knew, and I'm just trusting you with that, God. 
and thanksgiving. And, and then it goes on. It says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen to me. You have a God in heaven who loves you. He's going to take care of you. He doesn't want you stressed out. He doesn't want you all worried and anxious. You don't need to be. That's why he's saying don't be anxious. He's Jehovah Shalom. Gideon was all stressed out. Then he realized who he was encountering, who he was talking to, and he built an altar of peace. He just said, okay, my life's in your hands. You're going to take care of me. You're going to see me through. Okay, he's going to meet my needs. He's going to meet my needs. Genesis 22:14. the Lord will provide. This is Jehovah Jireh. Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering. This is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament promise of God giving up his son for us. But just before Abraham follows through, God stops him and provides a sacrifice. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. This is the ultimate test of Abraham's sincere and pure devotion to, to God. This is what he was testing. Do you, really, do you really fear me more than anything else? Do you respect me? Do you love me? Do I have your heart, Abraham? That was the test. And this, is, this was also the ultimate revelation that God will provide all of our needs. How many have ever heard me use this term, gospel logic? Show of hands, gospel logic? Okay. Yeah, some of you went like this. Yeah, we've heard that before. <laughs> Not enough of you have, evidently. Let me, let me give you a little bit of gospel logic. It's found in... Romans 8, 31 and 32, it says this, if God is for us, then what? Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. He, goes, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Do you hear the gospel logic in that? If he took care of your worst problem, what was your worst problem? You're going to be eternally separated from God because of your sin. And he sent his son to this earth and lived the life that we should have lived, died the death we should have died, to give us that perfect righteousness before God. So if he took care of our worst problem by sacrificing his son, by not sparing his own son. Now listen, listen to the words. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Here's what I typically tell people, whether you're struggling, you just got that terminal report of cancer, or you're, just, you're in the midst of devastation in your life. This is what I say. Hey, if he didn't spare his own son and taking care of your worst problem, he's not going to spare anything now and taking care of you. He hasn't abandoned you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's got you covered no matter how you feel. He's with you. If he didn't spare his own son, he's not going to spare anything else right now and taking care of you. That's gospel logic. That's why it tells us in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the next one. He wants to fight my battles. He wants to fight my battles. So he wants to forgive my sins Make me whole, manifest his presence, relieve my stress, meet my needs, fight my battles. Exodus 17, 15, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nissi. So Joshua leads the Israelite army to victory over the fierce Amalekites as Moses prays for them from a nearby hill. You guys familiar with this story? So, so Moses up on the hill, when he raises his arms up like this, Israel's beaten the Amalekites. But when he starts getting tired, he gets fatigued, his arms start going down, and the Amalekites start beating Israel. You guys remember the story? So what happens? A couple guys, uh, what were their names? Anybody remember their names? Aaron and Ur, H-U-R, assist Moses as he holds up his staff during the battle. And so they kind of support him as he's praying, and then the battle's won. It's a fascinating story, and this is where we get this idea where, where Moses says, the Lord is my banner. So what it's teaching us is that it takes intercession on the mountain as well as intervention in the valley for us to win the victory. The idea here, the Lord is my banner, you guys know what that means? The word means standard, and so it's a rallying point. How many have been watching the Phoenix Suns? Anybody here? Okay, there's like three of us, okay. They wave that big flag, rally the valley, you know what I'm saying? Rally the Valley? Okay, you guys obviously don't really care about any of that, do you? And some of you are saying, who are the Phoenix Suns? That's like, okay, three of us actually know. They got this big flag, Rally the Valley! Everybody's, yeah! They just beat the, the Pelicans. That's, that's a horrible name for a team. It just seems wimpy, doesn't it? They just beat the New Orleans Pelicans. And now they're going to 
be going up against the D Dallas Mavericks. Is that true? Someone help me out here. Okay. Okay, so, okay, there's a few fans over here. Let me talk to you guys. I'm not going to worry about you guys. You guys know what I'm talking about. Rally the Valley. We all come together. We're going to cheer our team on. Okay, it's a dumb basketball game. I got it. It is. It's really stupid. This was different here. They had a banner. They would wave that banner, and they would all rally together. Kind of locker room talk, and now we're going to go after the enemy. That's the idea. The Lord is our banner. It's, it's an amazing uh, picture here. And so God, he fights our battles for us. Here's a couple of verses that help us to understand that. Psalm 60, 12. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17. This is a great story. This is a story of, uh, of Elisha. And he's cool, calm, and collected because God's people are surrounded by enemies. But he's like, he's not stressed out. But his servant is all stressed out. He's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so Elisha says to him, do not be afraid. This is 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17. Do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses, chariots of fire all around Elisha. So do you hear what's happening here? So the servant who's freaking out, he begins to go, oh, well, I, I, I have an accurate view of God. He's for us. He's not against us. Why am I stressed out? The army that's on the side of God is bigger than the army that's against us is really what he's saying. See, when we're anxious and angry and depressed and all that, it's because we just need our eyes to be open. And we need to let God fight that battle for us. Here's the next one. Heal my hurts. Exodus 15, 26. I am the Lord, your healer, Jehovah Rapha. The people of Israel are three days in the wilderness on their journey from Egypt, and the only water they find is undrinkable and bitter. So God tells Moses to throw a tree in the water, and it will become sweet. So here's the promise. The promise is that obeying God will provide protection from the diseases inflicted upon the Egyptians. That's literally what it says here. For I am the Lord, your healer. So let me ask you this. Does God still heal today? Yes. Absolutely. Does he hear it? heal everybody? Absolutely. Absolutely either now or in heaven. But he will heal you eventually. It's just a matter of time. It's not will he, but when will he? Can you wait for his healing one way or the other? Listen to what it says here. It's James 5, 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So you get this idea of both physical and spiritual dynamics working together here. He's more concerned about our spiritual life than our physical life. Sometimes he'll use our physical life to enhance, to make better our, our spiritual life in him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. You may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I'm telling you, when we pray for one another... Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. That's what he's saying. The prayers of a righteous person, that's you and I, have great power. There's something that's happening in our lives. He might not do it according to our timeline, but he's going to heal. And this is what I've seen him do. Sometimes he'll calm the storm. He'll bring the healing. Sometimes he'll calm his child in the storm. Either way, we trust him. I love the prayer, and this is what I'll pray for you, and I've done this for many people. If, you, if you're diagnosed with a terminal cancel, uh, cancer, I will pray for you until God either heals you or takes you home and heals you. And so I'll do what Jesus did in the, in the, the garden. Remember what Jesus did? Let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. What did Jesus do? Jesus asked boldly but ultimately surrendered completely because he trusted the Father. And that's what we'll do. So God does, yep, he, he can bring healing power. By the way, 6 o'clock on Saturday nights, we have a prayer team that meets here. That If you want prayer, you can come and join us. Uh, monthly elders meetings, if you want to come, we'd love to anoint you with oil and pray for you. If you want to come at the end of the service, I would love to be able to pray with you along with any other the elders that are here in this service. We will anoint you with oil. We'll pray for you. We've seen people healed.
here at Desert Breeze. We've, we've seen God heal people here, and, and so that's why we, we ask, we pray, and that's, that's important to keep in mind. And here's what I know more than anything, regardless of what you're going through, the one who names and numbers the stars can heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. And whatever you're getting through, he is more than enough. Psalm 147.3. Here's the last one. Satisfy my soul. We've got to wrap it up. I'm going, I'm going a little bit long here this morning. You guys okay with that? Okay. So Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Rohi. King David writes this beautiful psalm to give us this very unflattering reminder that we are sheep. Sheep are dumb, defenseless, and diseased animals. And so he's just telling, we're sheep, he's the shepherd, but Christ is our good shepherd who lays down his life for us. John 10 tells us that he's the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He will bring contentment to your life in all aspects of life. That's what he's saying. What is this contentment? Contentment is an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence, providence, and promises of God. Quiet spirit, yeah, you'll get to a place in your life as you trust in him. No bitterness over the past, no complaining about the present, no worry about the future. That's the contentment that he wants to bring to us. Now, next weekend, Isaiah 49, 8 through 16. God's amazing promises, when you feel forsaken. We're going to talk about that next week. When you feel forsaken, what do you do? So, as I stated, if you're new here this morning, I'd love the opportunity to meet you. If you need prayer, if you'd love to commit your life to Christ, we'd love to help you walk through that. If you need prayer for healing, we will pray for you. If you've got any questions about this message, we'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment, bow your heads. Which one of these are you needing the most this morning? Which of these characteristics of God, which of these stood out to you? Just allow God to meet you right at your point of need. Father God, your name, your character is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and are safe. You're a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. The more we get to know you, the more we trust you, Lord. For you have never forsaken those who seek you. So, Father God, we ask by grace through faith in Christ Jesus that you would forgive our sins, make us whole, make us more like Christ, manifest your presence, relieve our stress, meet our needs, fight our battles, heal our hurts, and satisfy our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.